Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew, and I was thinking it might be nice to stay in the region that I was talking about last week. So, if you're listening in order, I was telling you about the USS Sachem, which is sitting in a creek bed in Petersburg, Kentucky, in Boone County. And so today, I'm going to tell you about the Abner Gaines House, which is also in Boone County, in a very small town called Walton. And listener discretion advised, this episode will include discussion of infanticide and suicide. Here we go. Abner LeGrand Gaines was born on February 12, 1766, in Orange, Virginia, to James Henry and Mildred Bland Gaines. He was one of eight children, but I don't know much about his early life. I know that he became a school teacher when he got a little older, and then he married Susan Elizabeth Matthews in December of 1792, and they had 13 children together. They moved to Woodford County, Kentucky around the turn of the century, and then to Boone County around 1804. And Abner Gaines was a busy guy. He was Boone County Justice of the Peace from 1805 to 1817, and then he was appointed sheriff. So he built a large house in Walton, Kentucky, in Boone County in 1812 or 1814, and that building and property would become known as the Gaines Tavern. He became the proprietor of the first stagecoach line that carried mail and passengers between Cincinnati and Lexington which in 1818 was a 34-hour round trip, so you definitely needed rest stops. So there's an L-shaped addition to the building, which is believed to have been added around 1820 to accommodate the guests from the stagecoach line. So a bit about Abner's children. Um, The Gaines' oldest son, James Matthews, grew up to be the first postmaster in their town of Walton, which was known back at the time as Gaines Crossroads um, in 1815. Woodford Gaines was a paymaster in the U.S. Army. Richard Gaines was appointed Mississippi District Attorney by President Jackson. Major John Pollard Gaines was a soldier and a statesman, and so on and so forth. It was a group of kids that would make your parents proud back then. However, they did all own slaves, I'm pretty sure. Records indicate that Abner Gaines had four slaves in 1810, eight by 1820, and nine in 1830. But one of his sons is more famous, or perhaps infamous, for the slaves he owned, because one of them was Margaret Garner. And I do want to take the time to talk about her story. So Margaret Garner was born a house slave to the Gaines family. Rumor is she may have been the daughter of Abner's son, John Pollard Gaines, because she was mixed. In 1849, she married an enslaved man, Robert Garner, and that year all the slaves were sold to John's brother, Archibald. And the Garner's first child was born in 1850. Three of Margaret's younger children, Samuel, Mary, and Priscilla, were born very light-skinned, and each of them was born five to seven months after Archibald and his wife had a child. So everyone speculated that Archibald had fathered all three of these children of Margaret's, 
The timing suggests that this is the case, and that Margaret was probably being raped by Archibald Gaines. So in January of 1856, the Garners escape while Margaret is pregnant, and they fled with some other enslaved families to Storrs Township, west of Cincinnati. They were with a group of about 17 other people. Robert Garner had stolen the Gaines' horses and a gun, and the Ohio River was frozen. It was actually the coldest winter of the century so far. So they were able to cross the river over the ice, and then once they got across, all the families kind of split up. So the Garner family went to Margaret's uncle's house, who lived along Mill Creek below Cincinnati. The rest of the families they'd escaped with reached their safe houses and eventually made it all the way to Canada via the Underground Railroad. So Margaret's family gets to the uncle's house, and then Margaret's uncle went to find Levi Coffin, who played a huge role in the Underground Railroad. And while the uncle was gone, U.S. Marshals found the Garners hiding in his house. Robert Garner fired the stolen gun and injured at least one marshal, but they were completely surrounded and no match for the slave catchers. When they were surrounded and Margaret knew they were going to be taken back and re-enslaved, she slit the throat of her two-year-old daughter. That's how much she didn't want her daughter to go through what she'd been through. And as they were being apprehended, she was also trying to kill her other children. She didn't want any of them to live their lives enslaved. So they were taken to jail, and they had a two-week trial. And it was unusually long because this case was much more complicated than the average fugitive slave hearing, which would typically last less than a day. And they couldn't decide whether or not the Garners should be tried as people and charged with the murder of their daughter, because under the fugitive slave law, they would be tried as property. The defense wanted her charged as a person, because that meant her trial would happen in a free state, which meant a governor would probably pardon her later. But the prosecutors argued that the fugitive slave law should be priority over local murder charges. Over a thousand people went to court each day, and they stood in lines outside the courthouse because they all wanted to know what would happen. It would set a precedent. And so 500 men were deputized so that they could keep these crowds under control. And finally, the judge ruled that the slave law took precedence. So on the closing day of the trial, the court heard from an activist named Lucy Stone. This is what she said. The faded faces of the Negro children tell too plainly to what degradation the female slaves submit. Rather than give her daughter to that life, she killed it. If in her deep maternal love she felt the impulse to send her child back to God to save it from coming woe, who shall say she had no right not to do so? Margaret and her family ended up being sent right back to the Gaines Plantation. After a while, Ohio authorities got a warrant to extradite her back to Ohio to face the murder charge, but they couldn't find her. 
and apparently that's because her master, Archibald Gaines, knew they were going to be coming for her, and he would move her around from city to city in Kentucky. So eventually they stopped Archibald himself in Louisville, but he had already sent them down the river on a boat to his brother's plantation in Arkansas. So the Garners are on this steamboat, the Henry Lewis, headed for Arkansas, and they collide with another boat, and they start to sink. And there are a couple versions of what happens next. In one story, both Margaret and her infant daughter are thrown overboard and drown when the boats collide. In another version, Margaret tosses her baby overboard after the collision and then jumps in after her, trying to drown herself. Both of these stories were reported in newspapers, but the truth is that Margaret and Robert made it to Arkansas, although I don't know about the infant. But after a little bit of time in Arkansas, they were sent to some of the Gaines' family friends in New Orleans. And in 1870, reporters from the Cincinnati Chronicle finally caught up with Robert, and he tells them about, you know, where they'd been. He said they worked in New Orleans for a little while as house slaves, and then in 1857, they were sold to Judge DeWitt Clinton Bonham for plantation labor in Mississippi. And he said that Margaret died of typhoid fever in 1858. And he said that before she died, she told him, never marry again in slavery, but to live in hope of freedom. Let's get back to the Gaines family and their tavern, because the Garners are a big story, but they're only a chapter in this property's history. The building itself is pretty grand. It's a federal-style two-story building. It's got three stairways, ten carved mantles. It's not what you would think of as a really huge house today, but for the time, it was definitely a mansion. The thing I find funny about it is that it doesn't have any closets, like a normal closet you would see in a bedroom. And they think it's because you would get taxed for every bedroom, and what technically made a bedroom was a closet. And so they think this was a little workaround to avoid paying higher taxes. So the only storage spaces they really have are these little cutout openings next to the fireplaces. And they're not big enough to store anything but firewood and maybe a gun. Um, So it's just kind of funny. It's this huge estate with no closets. Anyway, uh, like I said, it served as a rest stop for the stagecoach line for decades because it sat halfway between Lexington and Cincinnati. Lots of notable names stopped there. Henry Clay, Richard Johnson, Breckenridge. Um, It had 18 rooms, a large ballroom. So it was really a place you could stop and have a nice meal and socialize. But it was also a place full of tragedy and violence. It was run by John Gaines for a while, one of Abner's sons. And he and his wife lost two of their sons to yellow fever while they were traveling by boat. And then once they got back from that trip, his wife was out riding horses with a group of friends, and she was thrown from her horse and died instantly. 
right on the property. So that was a tragedy. And then a few years after that, a guest named Benjamin Runyon shot himself in his room. And then in 1842, there was a pretty gruesome murder. Um, So in 1842, it was still a very lavish place to be. And I believe it was owned by a doctor at this time. And he would have formal events there. So one night he was having a party in the ballroom. And there were two young men, Robert Harrison and William Northcutt, who were trying to flirt with the same woman. And so Harrison was dancing with the woman. And Northcutt approached them while they were dancing. And Northcutt knew that Harrison was balding, even though he was pretty young. And so he knew that he was wearing a wig. So Northcutt goes up to them and pulls Harrison's wig off of his head. And Harrison was so shocked and angry that he promptly turned around, pulled out a dagger, and stabbed Northcutt in the heart, killing him instantly. I guess people were sympathetic to Harrison because he wasn't charged for the murder. It also could have helped that he was a relative of President uh, William Henry Harrison. But he also didn't get the girl. Um, He never married and he died a recluse. So uh, all around just a sad story. In between this murder and the next death on the property, the house was used as a staffing headquarters during the Civil War. Around 1869, the house was sold to a man named Jerry Glenn, and he also liked to entertain. He liked to have all his guy friends over to play cards, and a lot of times these card games would go late into the night, and so his guests would just stay over. And one evening in March, one of his guests was Major John Goodson, former mayor of Covington. And Major Goodson had recently lost a lot of money in the oil business. And in the middle of the night, others awoke to the sound of a gunshot, and they found Major Goodson dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in the same room where the other guy had committed suicide decades earlier. So after that, the property was sold again, uh, this time to a man named Robert Cleek. And one day, Mr. Cleek's wife's younger sister committed suicide in the yard by pouring coal oil all over her clothing and starting a fire. And when I read this one, I thought, no way. This has to be apocryphal because it's just so brutal. Um, And then I watched a video about this from the historical center. And the video actually had the newspaper clipping about this suicide. So this is the actual newspaper story. Miss Lizzie Rice, aged 28, one of the wealthiest and best-known young ladies of Boone County, Kentucky, went into an orchard in sight of her residence and, saturating her clothing with coal oil, set herself on fire and was burned to a crisp. Despondency was the cause. It also said that her father had killed himself the same way about a year earlier, which is just, God, it's so tragic. Um, 
The addition to this story that I heard on a video but didn't read in the paper is that after she set herself on fire, she apparently ran back into the house through a side door and she lived for a few hours after that, which is just miserable. Um, An 1899 article published in the Boone County Recorder reported nine murders and suicides that had occurred on the property by that time. So before the turn of the century, nine deaths. And when that article came out, the Gaines house was actually owned by a nephew of William Northcutt, the man that was killed by Robert Harrison at the ball over a girl. A man named John Galt purchased the property in 1936. He was an antique dealer, and his family lived there for five decades. He's the one that builds all the little garages and buildings on the property to store his antique car collection, which is said to have been quite impressive. And then the Gaines Tavern was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1979. But after telling you all of this, I'm sure you can understand why the Gaines House is sometimes referred to as the Kentucky Horror House. So I can't finish up here without talking a little bit about the hauntings. One of the videos I was watching talked about a staff person who was there giving a tour for a ghost walk. And so they all went outside and the guide was facing away from the house and the crowd was facing the house. And so they're taking pictures of the guide with the house in the background. And in those photos, you can see an older man in a window with a younger little girl next to him. And they confirmed there were not any live older men or little girls in the building at that time. Uh, The ghost of the little girl... Uh, They believe it might be one of Abner's daughters who passed away young in 1822. And she likes it when the tour guides play the instrument in the living room. I think it's a piano, but yeah, apparently they like that. And there have also been sightings of a headless man, which um, in my book, that's never good. Um, There's also a story of an electrician working on the property who was so rattled by whatever he saw that he fled the property on foot, leaving his car behind, which is hilarious. Um, Ghost hunters did an investigation at the Gaines house that I have to admit I haven't watched, but I think you can find it if you have Discovery Plus. As far as I know, it's not really open to the public right now. Um, I do hope it reopens in the future, even if like for private tours, because all the hardwood and fixtures and windows are still original, which is great since the building is over 200 years old. Um, but as far as I can tell, it, it appears to be owned by the city, um, operating as the Gaines Tavern History Center, but I can't find like an official website or anything. As far as I can tell, it just looks like it's closed down and not being used for anything. Um, so that's kind of a shame, but... That is the story of the Gaines Tavern. So 
so you guys know, I tried to find the photos they were talking about in the video of the young girl and the older man in the window during that ghost tour, but I couldn't find anything. So if you guys can come up with something, let me know, because I'd love to see what they were talking about. But that's going to do it for this episode. Um, if you've ever been by the Gaines Tavern or you have a story from that area or Boone County, uh, let me know. Send me an email, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. You can also use that email to uh, tell me about a correction I need to make or just give me feedback or I love a good topic suggestion, so keep those coming. Uh, be sure to follow the social media if you're not already. I'm on Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts and on Facebook, just search Kentucky History and Haunts. And be sure to check out kyhistoryhaunts.com for additional links, more information, and awesome photo galleries of all the topics. So that's going to do it. Uh, take care and until next time.